Welcome to the Non-Aligned Podcast. We're back with an urgent conversation on the escalating crisis in Burma, following the coup d'etat of February 1st. It's six weeks since the coup, and the military is effectively at war with its own people. The elected leaders, including Aung San Suu Kyi, are in detention, and there is a total mobile internet blackout. For the latest, we speak to Mo Thuzar, former diplomat and current co-coordinator of the Myanmar Studies Program at ICES, the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore. Footnote for non-aligned regulars, Mo is the granddaughter of Utun Win, a key member of the Burmese delegation to the 1955 Bandung Conference, where Burma was one of the conference co-sponsors. We also speak to Fanny Potkin, the Southeast Asia tech correspondent for Reuters, about Myanmar's accession to the Milk Tea Alliance. Fanny comes from a family of Burma scholars with a deep connection to the country. This podcast is for the victims of the coup, the Myanmar people, and for our colleague Sean Turnell, who remains in prison somewhere in the country. I'm Quinton Tembi, joined by co-host Made Supriyatma. Fanny and, and Mo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And Mo, I want to start with you by asking first if you'd if you'd give us an update on how things have unfolded so rapidly in Myanmar, just to give us a scale of of the the crackdown, a sense of the scale of the violence and the detentions uh, mm-hmm. that we've seen in recent weeks. Uh, thank you, Quentin. Yeah, um, it's, um, it's been around 50 or so days since February the 1st when um, life as we knew it in Myanmar changed uh, very abruptly and um, changed for the worse. Um, the, the military coup on February the 1st, basically, um, I think those, those of us in Myanmar, those of us watching events in Myanmar, did start hearing about um, uh, the military's uh, escalating intentions to um, to to uh, to mount or to stage uh, such such a coup, but um, the ostensible reason being a voter or electoral fraud. Um, the, the 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 reasons just seemed ludicrous, you see. And then there were uh, high level negotiations going on between. Um, representatives of the NLD government, uh, the National League for Democracy, which was uh, returned to power in the landslide uh, 2020 elections. And uh, this dialogue was uh, going on between the NLD government representatives and the uh, the, the military representatives, but um, they, they ended uh, inconclusively with the, the military uh, making more belligerent statements, and uh, on February the first, we all woke up to this uh, to this reality that the um, the military wanted to impose on the country uh, again, ostensibly to um, to return to the path of what they call quote unquote disciplined, flourishing democracy and better governance, particularly in the business and economy. But really, what's been happening since February the first up to now in the fifty or so days? close to 300 are dead because of the increasing violence, use of lethal force, and, and, the, and the killings and shootings that are going on in, uh, all across uh, in cities and towns in Myanmar. 
and over 2,200 persons have been arrested, detained or sentenced. Among those detained, of course, are the 170 or so uh, NLT government senior officials, including Don San Suu Kyi and U Win Mien, the state councillor and the president, uh, as well as members of the NLD cabinet, party members and affiliates, and uh, advisors such as Dr. Sean Turnell of Macquarie University in Australia. They have all been detained since uh, early February, and of course, there are the nighttime arrests and the disappearances that are going on um, in the uh, the crackdowns that happen after the protests and, and uh, shootings end each day. So um, again, be because of this coup, uh, there are nationwide protests. People who have been tracking it, uh, there's a young Kachin politician who actually tried to track it in late February. Um, Practically uh, a large number, or practically all of the townships across uh, Myanmar are participating in these anti-coup protests and demonstrations, with the except of townships in, uh, with the exception of townships in Rakhine State and uh, some parts of Kachin and Shan State. But that's the uh, updates as of late February. And of course, you know, I think uh, the whole world, with the immediacy of the uh, information sharing that we have through technology, we are seeing the hundreds and thousands of people taking to the streets, uh, demanding the release of elected leaders and um, the restoration of civilian rule. And so um, the first protests, though, didn't begin immediately on February the 1st. Uh, it started off with uh, quite an interesting uh, traditional Burmese way of beating out evil spirits. Uh, and it started in Yangon, which is the main commercial hub and uh, the former capital before the uh, previous military junta moved uh, the capital to Nepido. So uh, Yangon residents started beating pots and pans in the evening of February the 2nd. And uh, that has quite um, an important psychological impact, I think, on the security forces, although they'll probably not admit it. But it was actually people in Mandalay who first uh, went out on the streets on February the 4th. And if it comes to the civil disobedience movement uh, that we know it today, um, it was started by the um, medical workers, doctors, health workers, knowing full well that they would be disrupting the um, COVID-19 testing and uh, vaccination schedules. Um, but uh, the, um, the, the, the importance of uh, bringing the coup um, bringing the military junta to realize that uh, this is uh, this is not what the people's uh, people's will or desire is, I think, was much stronger, and and so um, it, I think uh, Dong San Suu Kyi had handwritten a note just before the coup, uh, I think, which was publicized on social media by her press secretary on February the first, um, calling for people to protest the coup in non-violent ways. Uh, so this could have also inspired, I think, the civil disobedience movement, as well as other very creative nonviolence protest moves I'm seeing, in addition to the beating of pots and pans, you know. Um, the, these are tech-savvy young people who are kind of like leading this leaderless movement of protest, which in turn are calling for encouraging and supporting the civil disobedience movement by civil servants. So we have these two kind of uh, different, um, different strands of the resistance uh, working uh, together in tandem, but also um, 
you know, uh, overall with a very, uh, the very shared and common objective. And it's across, it's across groups and communities in society who may not have uh, agreed with everything the NLD government was doing or saying, who would have had critical views of the NLD government, but nevertheless, um, the desire to not give the military any more role larger than life role in the country's political life has, uh, I think, basically rallied people together. So, you know, you see projections of anti-coup messages and uh, pictures of uh, leaders, NLD leaders on buildings at night. Um, you see paintings of uh, anti-coup uh, messages, sometime in 3D on roads and public places and even on reservoirs. But uh, if we're looking at... Um, uh, what what the resistance movement, what the anti-coup protests and so on are calling heroes and heroines um, uh, of the anti-coup protests. Nya um was uh, was the kind of the first uh, the first to be injured critically, and it also sent a, a lot of uh, shockwaves because uh, the the security forces were were supposedly using rubber bullets, but m uh, medical uh, workers, doctors uh, attending to Myatatwe Kain um, said otherwise. Um, and uh, well, uh, earlier that week, uh, earlier this, this was uh, this this shooting. The first shooting was February the ninth, as I said. Uh, but the uh, civil disobedience movement uh, started uh, actually on February the third, and uh, it's been gaining ground ever since. Um, right. But uh, I, I think most of them are still in uh, what I would assess as the the mid to the lower ranks of civil servants. Um, of course, a very high level, high profile uh, type of uh, uh, civil disobedience uh, action uh, that that also caught the attention of the world would have been the uh, denunciation by Ambassador John Motun uh, in New York. Um, and, and that was on February the 26th, uh, which incidentally was also the day when um, the military nullified the 2020 election results. Yeah, so um, just, just, to, just to give you a picture of how, uh, how this civil disobedience movement has grown, um, I think since, uh, since the coup up to now, uh, there are... Uh, a lot of uh, staff and personnel, some even at the director level in in the the what I would call the sectors, the economic sectors, ministries of commerce, electricity and energy, transport, um, even agriculture, um, they've joined the the CDM at uh, various places, and public support for the CDM just continues to grow. Uh, there are there are different channels uh, for people to donate and contribute to all these people, um, staying away from work, taking leave, prolonged leave, or just going home to uh, visit their parents and just not showing up for work. Um, and the transportation sector is really interesting uh, because staff from Myanmar Railways in both Yangon and Mandalay have been the second largest group after the medical, you know, the, the medical doctors and health workers um, in participating in the CDM. Um, I've, I've been uh, reading and hearing that, I mean, close to 100%, you know, over 90% of railway employees are on strike. And this was according to an official from Myanmar Railways. And uh, very sadly, 
the the Myanmar railway staff uh, were evicted from their staff quarters for participating in CDM, but you know they continue to be defiant, and all this is happening amidst curfews and nighttime harassments and raids. Curfews were, I think, imposed in uh, Yangon and Mandalay and other townships on February the 8th, and that was also when the military announced uh, bans on gatherings of more than five people uh, to try and stamp out the protest, but obviously uh, nobody's heeding those bans. And uh, I think on on that day also, uh, Senior General Min Aung-Line made his first televised address to the nation where he promised to hold new elections in a year and hand power to the winners. But um, clearly the NLD is not part of that calculation. Uh, looking at the kind of uh, trumped-up charges that are being piled on uh, uh, you know, uh, people like Don San Suu Kyi, uh, first, she was charged for possessing walkie-talkies under the import-export law, then for breaking COVID-19 restrictions under the natural disasters law. And now um, they're trying to pin uh, very uh, heavy corruption charges on her for taking bribes from uh, at least uh, two, if not three, persons. So the seriousness of those charges is is only escalating. Yes, um, and and it's and it uh, it really brings home the point, Quentin, about uh, how the NLD and probably particularly Dong San Suu Kyi um, have been the military's nemesis all these past decades since 1988, and and how uh, even the current junta uh, seems to uh, view uh, view this. Uh, in, in you know in in the same uh, through the same lens and so for for promises to be made about uh, new elections uh, to return to the democratic transition and political parties uh, to compete in it but trying to uh, put up all these obstacles and hurdles again for one particular political party, which incidentally had won landslides not only once but twice, um, sends sends a very clear message, I think, to people who are watching about you know watching and trying to assess the sincerity of all of these pronouncements. At the same time, of course, uh, because uh, the the uh, the government, the NLD cabinet officials and government officials are, are either in detention or are out of office or are you know uh, now just staying at home, um, the elected parliamentarians have uh, formed the committee representing the Bidanzu Hlutto, uh to serve as an interim entity, and uh, they also seem to be, I, I think, uh, focusing a lot on. Um, on, on shall I say foreign policy because uh, they're, they're, they're trying to get the message of uh, Myanmar's situation across more to the international community. Well, maybe we can come back to foreign policy because I wanted to um, bring Fanny in on this issue of how the protest has played out online. And Mo, you mentioned this fascinating moment when Aung San Suu Kyi wrote down this call to to action, to civil disobedience, and then that was put out through social media. The burning question I have for Fanny, and because I know you're looking at this really closely um, on all the different social media platforms, is do you think the, the military has underestimated what it takes to, to do what they're doing to enact a coup in, a, in the internet age at a time when everything and everyone, especially the protesters, are just much more networked digitally in a way they wouldn't have been um, in previous times? 
Um, I, I think that's quite a complicated question. I mean, in a sense, I guess yes and no. Um, the military in Myanmar is no slouch when it comes to um, information, online information operations and active online attacks, what is colloquially uh, referred to in Myanmar as cywars, psychological warfare. Um, and it has definitely been active in this, almost certainly, during the coup. The internet dimension of the protest, I think, has been really interesting and started almost immediately. Um, and whether or not the army has managed to control the internet is kind of a... It's a loaded question, and it's there's both. It has not con- managed to control the whole internet, and I think, um, and I think it was, I think it expected to have more control. On the other hand, it has been successful in some ways, um, and it shows that it took the internet into consideration from the very start where soldiers at midnight or at dawn pretty much went to every data center internet basically uh, for the internet across the country and uh, cut or hacked the wires and I've seen the photos they really hacked them with like machetes um, and threatened in some cases or pretty much like um, put guns in the in the faces of some of the staff at some data centers some some were had more peaceful kind of uh, uh, were more peacefully taken over by the military but in some cases it was quite violent confrontation as they cut down the internet and that managed to very successfully um, cut the internet in a lot of Myanmar for a while they well pretty much while they took over Nipido um, so after that, in the early days, after the protest in Mandalay um, by the medical students, um, once the protest in Yangon start, Generation Z, and which is the young generation and which hasn't really, for the most part, didn't really li- leave under the military, like they are, they are the ones who have lived under the freest, you know, version of Myanmar in the last fifty years were very, very active online to mobilize and to use uh, social media um, to to basically uh, organize and to get people on the streets. And kind of they took also from other protests, uh, Hong Kong, Thailand, and I'm sure we'll get to the military alliance soon enough um, in their signs. And they used humor and the like. And then the other, uh, the other basically perspe- uh, side of that is that Immediately, people started um, using Facebook Live, and obviously, everybody in Myanmar really loves Facebook. Uh, so they started using Facebook Live to broadcast the protest, to broadcast any form of kind of like anger at the coup and anger at the military in different kind of forms. Many of them quite creative. So very quickly, the internet played an important role. And after the shooting in Nepido, um, where she, you know, where that that um, that young girl uh, was shot in the head, and it was broadcast and seen, um, you know, throughout Myanmar very quickly, um, the tone of the protest started changing, and many still came into the streets, but there was there were other people who also felt that um, it was maybe not safe, um, and this this is a feeling that has kind of continued where there is the many, the hundreds of thousands that go into the streets all across the country, but then there's probably millions who are protesting in, in different ways from home and who started using the internet. And I had never quite seen it 
in this way uh, in what they deem as kind of keyboard fighters um, to basically try to send images of abuse and of um, images of abuse and of the protests and of the situation in Myanmar to journalists and activists in mass uh, on Twitter and social media. And I do think one of the things the army did not count on is how quickly many in Myanmar would um, would be able to kind of download VPNs and the like. And I, I think that's an interesting question. And I mean, I get, as a journalist, I get messages every day, several messages, usually with footage, video, uh, pictures of like, usually now it's been kind of daily shootings and uh, violence, um, abuses by security forces um, that's sent to me and usually other journalists and activists to try to kind of get that information out to, to massive numbers. And I've seen on Facebook, there is, they call themselves Twitter teams, where they'll, like, they'll try to spam in a way kind of um, reporters or journalists with bigger or activists with bigger followings to kind of get this footage and the like out, which has been a very interesting dimension of the protests. Um, quite a strategy. Obviously, quite a strategy you know, to what they're doing then. Yeah, and some of this has kind of like been inspired by Hong Kong, where Hong Kong was very useful um, in um, basically in kind of taking from the internet. And very, very, very early on, there was exchanges between Hong Kong activists, uh, Thailand activists, and young Myanmar activists. Um, but at the same time, I think it should be made clear that. Sadly, the army has been very successful at uh, blocking, you know, by blocking mobile internet, they make it impossible to know, um, unless you have sources or contacts in those regions, what's going on in the many rural areas where people are protesting. And where, um, I mean, the army in Yangon and in Mandalay and in Nepido is very violent, but they also, there's also a lot of reporters there, there's cameras, they know their scene. I mean, to be honest, they have, I think, they care less and less, but there's still footage and evidence of this. Um, so there's a real question of just what kind of violence and what kind of clashes are going on in areas where the population only uses mobile internet and where there's no Wi-Fi and uh, of the potential human rights abuses that are going on there. And in that level, I would think that it has been kind of a successful approach to shut down the internet um, to shut down mobile internet in keeping people quiet, but it hasn't been entirely effective. Um, and the army is aware of this, and of course has very, in, you know, very intense and very sophisticated internet uh, influence operations and teams that work on social media. And there is different evidence that seems to point to those teams being also quite active during the coup. Um, so it's not, they are fighting back as well on social media. So it's not, it's kind of a, I would say it's a mixed bag and it's a mixed portrait in how successful their control of the internet has been. And there's been quite a lot of conjecture as to where their cyber, the, the military cyber warfare or, or whatever you might call it, um, uh, cyber operations, technical skills and, and technology comes from. Do you have a sense of whether this is uh, Russian training and equipment or Chinese or, or, some, or something else? Uh, we are currently investigating this and trying to get a better sense of this. I will say that it is almost certainly, while, um, like for example, Chinese facial recognition cameras, and I'm sure Chinese software at different levels is being used in Myanmar, China is almost certainly not training um, 
you know, not training basically the Myanmar army right now. Uh, I think it really should be, um, it's an important point that really China and the Chinese and Myanmar, the Burmese army have a very ambiguous relationship um, and that it has far from being as positive and kind of like as friendly a relationship as the Burmese, as the Myanmar army has with Russia. Maybe I could just add to what Fanny has shared, because the social media dimension, what um, what's emerging also is members of the military or supporters of the military using uh, video sharing platforms like um, TikTok, for example, to to kind of like a push back with that. Um, Psy war, which is psychological warfare, on social media. Um, so, so there was this uh, this instance of a lot of um, the, uh, the 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 military personnel or supporters just uh, posting videos on TikTok, uh, uh, basically trying to reinforce uh, the military's message or or the the statements made by security personnel that you know uh, when they shoot they shoot to kill or they're not uh, shooting flowers they're shooting bullets that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, like, for what we've seen on TikTok, there has been definitely, it, there was, uh, the Myanmar army was present, Myanmar soldiers were present on TikTok, but, like, uh, one of the videos we saw, or that I saw, it's like, I will, you know, I will shoot whoever I see in the protest. I will shoot you in the head if mm. you dare to bang a pot. Um, I will patrol the whole city tonight. If you want to become a martyr, I will f- fulfill your wish. You know, it's very explicit. And it was hundreds hundreds, conservatively hundreds of videos, I think there was at least a thousand um, that just basically started popping up and up and that present, um, I mean, some of them are certainly genuine because there is a many members of the military who do believe in what the what the junta is doing, but I would argue that uh, many others uh, showed sign of a coordinated campaign. Interesting. Uh, because on Facebook, uh, you can report this, right? And, and of course, many of the military-related Facebook accounts now are banned or taken down. So, so I, I thought that was an interesting thing. Sorry about my day. No, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> uh, no, I just, uh, I just, uh, uh, I want to know how deep is the, the influence of the military in overall of the Burmese society? Because it is impossible to, if you want, if you want to, uh, to be in power, you at least have some support within the society. It's like Suharto before. Uh, I learned from a lot of uh, dictators or authoritarian regime. They actually did uh, what's it built some supports within the society. So how, how big is it? Uh, is it possible? Uh, is it uh, is it very strong or a little bit? Week, I don't know. I want to ask you about this, two of you about this. Mm. You know, that's a really interesting question because um, if you if you look at the years immediately after Burma then gained independence, you know, this would be the decade nineteen forty eight to nineteen fifty eight, where uh, basically uh, Burma had parliamentary democracy and everything, and and the military. Um, uh, which is referred to as the Dutmadaw, uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, was was known as the the liberator, right? The liberator from uh, all the oppressors mm-hmm. of colonial rule, of uh, occupation, and all of that. So I think in those uh, immediate post independence years, the the military was was really seen as. Um, as a career choice, you know, a desirable career choice, as well as an avenue of social mobility, and um, and the the uh, the the kind of uh, you know the cohesion, the organization, the administrative capacity that the military had, you know, with its discipline and so on. I think um, they. The, I think society then in those days probably looked looked to the military as 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 the as the very well organized institution and and you must remember also about my day um, immediately post independence there there were all these um, uh, political divisions you know uh, the ethnic divisions or uh, mistrusts and and even personal animosities and you know different uh, uh, different kind of uh, power struggles and and basically the the the, the state the, the state in Burma right it was trying to build it was trying to build or rebuild um uh, after the war after after getting back independence and all of that so you know um it it, it was like that but of course uh things uh, changed uh, very much after uh general Nguyen uh got a taste of what it meant to be sitting in the the leader's seat when um uh when uh prime minister then prime minister unu asked him to you know take over uh to to restore stability as a caretaker government and then hold elections again uh and and those elections which were held after so-called stability and law and order uh, was restored, um, uh, basically gave the uh, the election win to Prime Minister Unu's party again. But uh, but but I think after that, you know, the 1962 coup where General Nguyen took over, uh, and and all the years after that, I think that's where again um, uh, the role of the military probably started going through. Uh, through through different changes, right? Uh, because that was when uh, it then started really taking that larger than life role uh, in the country's uh, political affairs and uh, practically uh, being a member of the military and uh, being a member of the administration uh, and and the Burma Socialist Program Party all became quite conflated. Um, so, so I I, I think. Uh, then when the the uh the coup the 1988 uh, coup d'etat happened of course um that was uh, uh also when uh, the um uh the military still tried to put forward its role as the guardian of the state but the the brutal treatment the suppression of the protests and uh the purges that followed after and the general imposition of ruling by law and fear uh, basically uh, created uh, this this um, this distrust uh, uh, that that I think we now see, um, ha- which has intensified and you know escalated to this point. Um, of course, uh, it's the the military. I think uh, is uh, is still seen uh, by many as a career choice, but but not because of maybe noble uh, a noble calling or or, or a or a kind of a disposition, but more more with very um, very uh, economic and uh, 
maybe even mercenary choices. It's a job for life. Even for the rank and file, it's a job for life or you get taken care of, right, uh, with pensions and so on. And those who join the um, officer uh, cadet schools and everything uh, could look forward to have uh, positions of authority at local levels or even in the bureaucracy with lateral moves, which would bring them in at a level higher to, say, um, the uh, the civilian, the civil servants uh, who are civilians. Uh, so basically, it's uh, I would think that it's um, it permeates society in the sense that, you know, um, you could have a member of the security forces in your family or in your extended family. They could be uh, either uh, army personnel or they could be police. But uh, I think what we're seeing now is that that deep distrust and, and the kind of uh, uh, the, the division and the polarization or the attitudes towards the military which have been growing stronger and stronger over the past uh, three or four decades uh, now have culminated in this, uh, in, in this wholesale voicing out uh, of, uh, of the desire uh, against military dictatorship, military rule. To the extent that some activists online, at least that I see, are calling for some kind of uh, military intervention under the you know, responsibility to protect uh, doctrine, what do you make of those calls and how, how wide they are? Well, how shall I put this? I mean, there has to be appetite to put boots on the ground. And right now, you know, the world is in a very different uh, frame of mind. And, uh, you know, for me, calling for intervention, uh, uh, it can take different ways. But uh, the, the, I think the, the, the desire or the aspiration really is uh, trying to get the world to intervene in Myanmar and, and to, to uh, basically move the military out. Uh, but we've seen examples in other parts of the world also where... Um, you know, there there has to be a, a much longer term commitment and sustaining of attention and so on. So, um, this is where I think uh, what what I call uh, more creative, innovative approaches to to uh, intervening in Myanmar by using all possible means uh, before uh, before that ultimate step of you know putting boots on the ground. Um, I think is is worth considering, which I think is what uh, the the international community and regional organizations like ASEAN are considering as well. Uh, you know, there are legal implications, and um, and we we are still in the midst of uh, COVID nineteen with various stages of vaccination or opening up or relaxing rules, and there are there are concerns of surges and so on. So I think all of these are all of these factors are, are combining and. Uh, maybe even conspiring to uh, create uh, all these challenges to the desires. But of course, if you look at the responsibility to protect, it, it starts from uh, really uh, going in, uh, looking at um, what, what are the capabilities, what are the capacities, and how we could address them or, or try to uh, address those gaps and shore up those gaps before uh, escalating it into different ways. So... Um, so that's how it is. In a way, uh, we do need to intervene. There needs to be some form of uh, flexibility or a creative um, interpretation to the non-interference um, principle that governs many international and regional organizations. 
But uh, by that same token, Myanmar also has been, I would suppose, the most interfered with country, um, even under this non-interference with the kind of, um, I think, engagements or, or the, um, or, or, or the or the behind the doors diplomacy uh, that have been done that actually brought about uh, windows or opportunities of change. You know, um, when when the uh, previous military regime was. Uh, so reluctant and recalcitrant to uh, allow international humanitarian assistance uh, for the uh, for the survivors of the uh, cyclone Nargis uh, devastation in uh, 2008. Um, it was ASEAN's uh, point blank um, challenge to uh, the representative, uh, the foreign minister then of uh, of the military regime then uh, about. Uh, what uh, what ASEAN means, and uh, you know, uh, what is it that uh, uh, they would uh, they they were willing to uh, to give up, or would then uh, if they preferred the UN process, then uh, we, they would uh, ASEAN would just uh, let the UN process take over with R2P and so on, and that's where uh, you know the the military regime then just uh, probably did something like a volte of fast and then uh, just said, okay, we will accept international humanitarian assistance as long as ASEAN coordinates. So of course these are all the kind of precedents that we have, but uh, we can't always uh, go back to precedents and try to uh, apply uh, the same kind of practice or 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 look at. Uh, what works in terms of all of that. But uh, all I'm saying is there are ways and means to intervene. Some of them may be less visible than uh, people, the, the, the wider uh, populace um, in, in Myanmar and, uh, of course, communities around the world uh, might see or not. But, um, but, but there, are ways, uh, there are ways to intervene creatively. And, uh, and, and uh, I, I think we all have to put our heads to it and, of course, uh, coordinate the approach. I mean, it can't be just one country, one person, or just one group of countries. It really has to be a coordinated approach with, uh, uh, with countries among the international communities, all of whom uh, have, have, um, have an interest and, uh, of course, skin in the game to, to see Myanmar uh, succeed in its democratic transition. Speaking of creative interventions, Fanny, I wonder what you make of the role of what's called the Milk Tea Alliance online movement, which, which started, was it in Hong Kong and has spread through the region and or started in Thailand, maybe, I'm not sure, maybe you can explain as, as a kind of, in a way, a kind of ironic counterexample to ASEAN and its principle of non-interference, Milk Tea Alliance, the, the guiding principle seems to be cross-border transnational interference in the sense of solidarity yeah yeah I, I think it's definitely very interesting I mean there, there is two um to conclude on most very interesting points I would have two questions I'd be interested in kind of delving into in this conversation as well um, one of them is Mo what do you think basically and um, we can get back to those after uh, talking about military alliance um, one of them is basically Mo if you think um, the army is repeating the same tactics it did in terms of propaganda and the way it's kind of um, trying to 
you know, push its own narrative than it did in 1988? Or do you think they've evolved in their kind of, in the way, uh, in the way that they're pushing out their message? Because um, I've heard mixed opinions on this. And the second to all three of you is basically, I'd be curious on what you make um, on um, later in the conversation on uh, Retno's efforts in Myanmar, which seem pretty earnest, but also, and it's, it's definitely true that... M- well, I mean, the the army in Indonesia has played a a more positive role recently than it has um, than it has, you know, during the years of dictatorship. Um, although that is a very loaded statement, so I'd be curious, um, just generally as well, what the opinion is on the kind of Indonesia overture and ASEAN efforts. But um, to to kind of segue on the military lines, I, I think that's definitely very interesting. So um, the I think that um, so so on Milti, very early on, people started using the three finger um, the three finger salute, uh, which has kind of an interesting history in that it starts in Bangkok in 2014. It's taken from the movies The Hunger Game, but it comes to represent a lot more than that. And then it becomes used in Hong Kong. Then it becomes a little bit and then it becomes really used in Bangkok later than used in Hong Kong as well and it has become used kind of more widely in the region and it had been used by young activists um, in Myanmar uh, in previous kind of smaller protests but then it became within days the symbol of the uh, of the CDM and the pro-democracy movement um, in in uh, Myanmar so that, that was kind of an interesting for me an interesting kind of aspect of how the the, pro- the protests kind of pollinate from each other um, in different ways. So very early on, um, young Burmese activists, you know, who are very plugged in, basically started having conversation via social media uh, with other activists in um, in Hong Kong and in Thailand. And so the Milti Alliance uh, starts in st- actually starts in Thailand. Um, it started after it starts very weirdly. It starts after uh, Thai activists, basically uh, Thai social media netizens, essentially started joking, got attacked. Uh, Thailand gets mocked by Chinese, uh, both fangirls and propagandists after a popular Thai star um, liked to post and implied that Hong Kong was a country. And that got a very virulent response, first from Chinese fangirls, a very uh, dangerous and uh, kind of aggressive group, and then from um, uh, Chinese kind of propaganda trolls, which are called colloquially wumaos. And the response from the Thai side was basically to all those attacks on how Thailand is a shit country was to kind of use the memes as a very subtle way to kind of like make fun of themselves and make fun of Thailand and criticize the king. And very quickly they got support from Taiwanese and um, Hong Kong activists. And due to the shared passion for you know, Milti, where each each um, each place has their own Milti. Um, the name Milti Alliance and the hashtag Milti Alliance was born. So very quickly, uh, Milti Alliance kind of stepped in, um, stepped in basically to kind of organize conversation. Like activists that identified as Milti Alliance st- stepped in basically to organize conversations. Um, and in Hong Kong, within days of the protest, Hong Kong activists started creating a um, creating basically 
basically a handbook of um, tactics that had worked in Hong Kong um, to recommend to Myanmar democracy activists. Uh, simultaneously, posts about how Hong Kongers dress for protest with the, the helmets and the mask and tactics from Hong Kong started getting translated into Burmese and circulating very, very heavily on Facebook. And I think within... I think within three days of the first protest, we at Reuters were speaking to protesters in the streets who were um, talking either about military alliance openly, or um, or who were saying or who were talking about how they got inspired by Hong Kong and Thailand, and how seeing in particular um, the. Mi- hundreds of thousands of Thai youths in the streets made them want to get out as well. Um, And the way a human rights activist in Hong Kong put it that I really liked was that there is power in solidarity. And that so multi-alliance before Myanmar had identified both as kind of a pan-Asian solidarity movement of people protesting against uh, their authoritarian governments or uh, but also was an element where they were protesting Chinese influence that switched a little bit in Myanmar, where it's China, in this case, multi-alliance in Myanmar isn't really about China. Um, but it gained, you know, those same people provided support at one of the biggest, um, at the biggest kind of Thai protests. People, multi-alliance activists also came out to support Myanmar with Burmese workers and expat. Uh, there's been multi-alliance kind of protest and science in Taiwan as well, in, um, in uh, Hong Kong, in Australia. Um, and kind of active support and kind of shared recommendation. I was just looking at a Reddit post on the Hong Kong protest Reddit from a Myanmar protester who says, hey, you know, guys, I'm a I'm a protester from Myanmar and we've just started using slingshots. Do you have any recommendations on how to bet, you know, to build the best slingshots? And the exchange of ideas goes both ways. Uh, Thailand's largest youth protest group was in days of the Myanmar protest, announced its own protest using banging, uh, with the banging of pots of pans. And I think, you know, the, the activists, they feel that they want to do the same thing. And they have a lot of sympathy from each other, and they feel that they can learn from each other's struggle. How much that it can that can accomplish is a good question, but it was it was definitely very helpful in mobilizing support um, among other youth populations across Asia. I know I'm not the first one to to mention this parallel, but it seems such a rare thing. I can't remember the last time we saw a kind of you know, transnational contagious movement like this in the region. But the thing it reminds me of is and, and reminds other people of, of course, is the is the Arab Spring uprisings, which, you know, you saw one, you know, Egypt and then one or Tunisia and then Egypt and then sort of one country after another inspired by the next, just as Facebook was becoming a big a big deal, did create this kind of contagion effect. I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm of mixed mind. I do think it's been very effective in kind of promoting, um, in promoting activism and the like. So you get this first wave and then there was a second kind of melty alliance day, uh, on March 1st, I believe, uh, where like there was a second kind of wave of rallies, um, you know, in different places and including even in, in Jakarta, there was like an online zoom protest as well. Um, and again, the same spirit of solidarity. And however, is that going to get people in the streets, um, you know, like it did with the Arab Spring? It, it's a good question. I mean, I, I guess it's working 
best in countries that either feel uh, either have their own you know feel oppressed in different ways like used to in Bangkok or um, you know or in Hong Kong uh, whether that could inspire more protests in different cities um, I'm not I'm not entirely sure but I do think it's created this very very loose coalition of pro-democracy activists who are having you know who are having exchanges the interesting thing is Joshua Wong had um, who has ties to the long long existing ties to uh, pro-democracy activists of the earlier generation in Bangkok, he had tried to uh, create this uh, alliance of um, this alliance of basically uh, activists across Asia, including, interestingly enough, in Vietnam and the like. And just to explain, Joshua Wong is, is one of the key leaders of the Hong Kong uh protest movement yeah one of the earliest leaders of the first umbrella movement and who remains um who was in the most recent hong kong protest um the most hong kong the most recent protests were leaderless in a in a in a way kind of in the same way as it is in myanmar um but joshua wong has remained a one of the most prominent activists and is currently jailed uh, for 13 and a half months um as part one of the kind of one of the many arrests and crackdown of on prominent activists and protesters in Hong Kong. Um, so he had tried, I believe it's in 2016, to get activists in Taiwan, in Vietnam, in Thailand to work together. Um, and they had had discussion, but it never really went anywhere. And that's kind of like what has happened very spontaneously with, um, with kind of the Melty Alliance now. Yeah, I, I have another question regarding to the movement. Uh, I'm a realist, uh, actually. My biggest question is that in these three countries, Hong Kong, Thailand, and Myanmar, I mean, Myanmar is the latest, but at least I've seen, we have seen uh, the movement was going on for a while in Hong Kong and also in Thailand, especially in Thailand, it's much longer. But none of them are winning. Uh, none of them are changing, changing uh, anything. So, um, do you think that will bring something in Myanmar? Even if we reflect on the Arab Spring, for example, it's uh, well, yeah. Uh, it seems nothing is um, changing. It's just uh, uh, what is that? Uh, the the regime is almost the same as before, and uh, the movement uh, dissipated, uh, and then it's become. It's it's not like the traditional uh, social movement. Well, organizing is the 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 key. Right now, it's not organizing, but it's a mobilization. It's a mobilization. It's very very fluid. And people can come and go, and then uh, yeah, without anything to really hold them together for something bigger. I know, probably I'm pessimistic, but uh, you know, uh, the nihilistic aspect of the 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 the, the modern, very modern movement is uh, is really concerned me. Now. Um, my question is that, uh, do you think that will be something that can be achievable by this movement in Myanmar? Or um, if just the military just defy them and uh, going and killing, doing a killing spree every day and, 
yeah, who will be, uh, who will, who will have the capability to stay longer? That will be the winner. Uh, I'm afraid that the military will be the winner. What do you take about this? It's a little bit. Well, maybe I'll jump in here, and this is where I think Fanny's earlier question about whether the military is repeating uh, the same tactics from three decades ago mm -hmm. in pushing its own narrative and its own ends, uh, or whether it has evolved. I would I would argue that the people have evolved mm -hmm. in in their creativity in actually coming together and and uh, trying to keep this as as leaderless and fluid although of course you know still still listening to or taking the advice of former student leaders like Mingo Nine for example who is also in hiding but the whole point of uh, not allowing any one group or not having any one group or a group of individuals directing the movement uh, is is I I I would think quite effective in this day and age where, uh, you know, there can be spontaneous protests and demonstrations, um, across uh, suburbs, neighborhoods, cities, and towns that that can also stretch uh, the ability of the security forces to uh, to to address all of these uh, protests and so on, and they also have uh, I I think the kind of tactics where they're not uh, uh, they're they're not uh, kind of like, uh, how shall I put it? They are not afraid to run and they are not too proud to run. It's it's really a game of, uh, like like you said, Bamade, it is a game of who can last the longest. And and um, I, I would also maybe uh, respectfully disagree with what you said about being nihilistic and not having this, uh, uh, you know, common binding or overarching thing that brings together because the common binding overarching objective across classes, you know, across communities, across ethnic lines, what we're seeing is um, the, the rejection of another potential decade or years of military rule. And, and even the uh, committee representing the Bidanzu Hlutdo's negotiations with the different ethnic armed groups show that the ethnic armed groups are also uh, providing or, or you know, uh, supporting the, the movement that we're seeing in Myanmar. So, um, so I think uh, the people have evolved and they are using uh, 21st century means. They are, they are even learning from or consulting uh, their, their, their friends in Hong Kong or looking at how the Hong Kong movements were to, to kind of put on the same kind of protective gear when they go out to protest, uh, in, including making makeshift shields and so on. Uh, but the, um, I, I guess you know, from your realist point of view, it's because the army has bullets and the army has weapons and they are not hesitant to use brutal lethal force against unarmed civilians. Uh, it seems like um, they are the Goliath in this very uneven match. Um, and, and earlier at a talk that I gave at my institute, I used the term that it, it, it looks to be shaping up like, like a war of attrition, which is really heartbreaking uh, for the protesters who, as Fanny has very rightly pointed out, the Generation Z, the young people, they have grown up in, in an atmosphere of, uh, of, of wider spaces for voice and expression, and they've seen what um, uh, the, 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 the transition, the gradual step-by-step -step, uh, 
journey towards transition and opening up and all of that uh, uh, can do. I mean, they, they, they are like any other young person uh, in this region across the world. And uh, it's their future. They have they have the largest stake in the future. If you even look at the life expectancy, I mean, how many more years or decades of, of their life are they willing uh, to just uh, subject meekly to to military rule and discipline, you know? Uh, so I think we have to look at it from that perspective. Whereas the, the, the military is still, you know, um, using the same language, uh, using the same coercive tactics to uh, civil servants, um, and and also um really trying to i i think uh you know uh get people to push these narratives uh by paying them money to do the lobbying uh to to, to defend what is almost practically indefensible yeah to to add to i i think i i i that's a, a lot of very good points and i mean the army's reaction does seem to imply that they are frightened and they have been taken aback by the strength of the CDM movement. Yes, I, I would agree, Fanny. I, I don't think they, they properly uh, estimated or calculated the impact that the civil disobedience movement across sectors, you know, particularly in the economic sectors, things that affect the logistics and supply chains uh, could, could have uh, brought the, the economic activity uh, the government's economic activity and all the plans that they had for business continuity to a practical standstill. And this is why they, they cracked down so hard on the shipyard workers in Mandalay by, by, by shooting them. And I think that was around February the 20th. And, and I think that incident uh, was one of the incidents that also caught the international attention and, and governments around the world, including I think here in this region, Singapore, uh, condemned these shootings. Can I ask you a question about the international dimension again to both of you, but in particular, Mo, you, because you've this is one of your particular topics of research, you know, Burma's international relations historically and and until now. Obviously, it's this it's a country that is located between the two giants of Asia, China and India, but the the main looming question internationally seems to be what chi- what stance China will take. We saw recently these mysterious burnings of Chinese factories and and then an intervention by the Chinese embassy to to threaten to that they're prepared to defend their interests in the country. Looking forward, perhaps, uh, what kind of role will China be playing or is playing and what impact will it have? Well, um, uh, exactly, Quentin. China, China uh, when, when, when the coup happened, of course, um, how it was reported was uh, reported by by Chinese uh, media in China was that there was a change in government. Um, but you know, uh, it's 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 calibrated its its tone and its language since then. You know, um, there are statements um, saying that the current developments in Myanmar are not what China wants to see, and uh, the um, the burnings of the of the factories. Uh, in Langdaya, the industrial zone, um, which which uh, brought brought that uh, that uh, very um, rather rather I think worked up language about China does uh, not uh, does not want to allow its uh, interest to be exposed to further aggression, and if the authorities cannot deliver, uh, China might be forced into taking more drastic action to protect its interests. I think this also uh, indicates that. Um, 
uh, increasing concern on the part of China, um, which has very significant a very significant economic footprint in Myanmar. It's among the the top five investors, and uh, uh, the other the other top uh, investors in Myanmar are ASEAN countries like Singapore, Thailand, um, and also countries like South Korea. So, basically. This is why uh, I, I emphasize the importance of uh, having that coordinated uh, approach and response by members of the international community, uh, because no one country, uh, I, I think, uh, can can wield that much agency uh, in a con in in any country. Um, but of course, uh, people naturally tend to look to China because of its significant economic interests as well as the. Um, uh, the shared border, you know, you can choose friends, but you can't choose neighbors. Um, and uh, the interesting thing, of course, now that I'm seeing uh, amongst the populace is to try and differentiate between uh, the CCP, uh, the, the, the Communist Party and the government and the business interests and all of that. Um, trying to differentiate that with the Chinese people in the sense that they're trying not to make this and an, an kind of like anti-China riot or a protest. Um, in a way, it stems back, I think, to the resentment that is felt in the ground, um, uh, on the ground, uh, in the previous decades where, uh, for the, for the previous uh, military regime of the State Law and Order Restoration Council, later State Peace and Development Council, um, the, 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 the sanctions regime and so on, I, I think, just pushed uh, the military closer into alignment uh, with China. And therefore, people on the ground in Myanmar viewed uh, China as uh, the country or the entity that was propping up or supporting or prolonging uh, the, the military rule. Uh, so I think there there are those kind of uh, sentiments that that are still there, and and of course, uh, with with the the the, in, the the economic opening up and the different investors coming in, and uh, and and the and the way that uh, workers and uh, uh, employers will be having uh, discussions and conversations over many aspects of uh, of uh, workers' life and situation in in different factories and uh, manufacturing areas, I think all of this come into play. Uh, but uh, the fact remains that um, uh, any, I think, any effort, any any attempt, any coordinated approach by members of uh, the international community, and of course with with ASEAN, um, I I think being given uh, either the central convening or coordinating role, uh, China China's participation and involvement and inputs can't be discounted. And is it crazy to imagine? China intervening in the conflict militarily in some in some way we we've seen recent recently it's um got into skirmishes with India on the Himalayan border so is that a realistic prospect well well China has sent uh, soldiers kind of on the Myanmar side before uh, but I would argue, and you know, it comes, um, and I think you had this in your in your recent article, but it comes to kind of this this uh, beloved stereotype in um, in uh, Southeast Asia, including in Indonesia, that uh, secret Chinese forces are hiding uh, or hiding among the the soldiers or the police. Um, but um, actually, China does intervene, or not necessarily with soldiers, uh, but with peacekeepers and etc. When it feels that it's the security of its business in, 
mostly of its citizens, but sometimes of its business interests and most prominently of its border is being threatened. Um, so when, when basically tensions kicked off again, in Kachin several years ago, uh, China did end up basically um, sending soldiers to the border who were uh, quite a bit into the Myanmar side, um, according to Kachin activists and um, advocates at the time. Um, so, and then basically China proceeded to take a quite active role, although that has quieted more recently, but quite active role into um, into negotiations between Kachin and the Myanmar government because it had a very uh, strong interest in wanting its borders safe and um, felt that after um, felt basically that the clashes and the violence were accurately kind of having impact on Yunnan and it was leading to uh, refugees rushing over to the Yunnan side. Yeah, I'm just looking back to, um, you know, what happened when... Um Cambodia issue cropped up in ASEAN in the 70s and 80s and that was also you know the the the, the principled uh, stand that ASEAN uh, took at the United Nations about intervention and interference and perhaps maybe you know with the exception of Thailand all the ASEAN countries having been under the most extreme form of intervention which is you know colonial rule um it, it was a principle that, of course, you know, ASEAN, ASEAN found that it had to defend in the face of uh, probably uh, the intervening forces uh, being widely viewed as liberators of, uh, of a very, um, very brutal regime in Cambodia as well. But, but let's not forget uh, the, the kind of uh, the, the diplomatic um, uh, initiatives and the facilitation of uh, bringing all parties concerned to the table to talk and and work out uh, peace accords and so on uh did bring about a resolution and um it also led to the birth of the ASEAN regional forum uh to continue discussing regional security issues so all i'm saying is this is this is an example of how um you know you, you can really put your 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 creativity uh uh to 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 be brought to bear in, in in coming up with ways that uh, that bring people to the table to to negotiate. I mean, my 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 main my main desire right now is just just you know for the killings to stop, for for innocent civilians not to suffer anymore. Chateau diplomacy in the context of um, of uh, trying to get foreign ministers and counterparts to agree to uh, language um, for a joint communique that was failed to be issued on differing positions on the South China Sea. Yeah, shuttle diplomacy on that kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, instance where the, the, the main aim is the failure to issue a, a, a joint communique uh, stating a collective position and therefore um, some... Uh, some shuttling back and forth needs to be made to to get uh, to get people to agree on on a language of a specific position. That kind of shuttle diplomacy is different from the kind of uh, diplomacy that needs to be done when a country is plunged into political crisis because the military just uh, decides to brush aside the democratic transition and use uh, a, a completely, I think, uh, you know. Uh, 
probably what seems to most of us an illogical reason or a straw man reason、uh, to stage a coup and oust a government, and sorry, an elected government that had、uh, just been returned,、uh, given a returned mandate in a landslide election. And what and what kind of diplomacy does the current moment call for? Well, I I think you know there's always this differentiation between megaphone and、um, and、uh, quiet diplomacy, and ASEAN's forte really is is the kind of quiet diplomacy、um, that、uh, that that requires a lot of negotiation, a lot of work, but uh, uh, you know、uh, the results are are probably announced or or seen later. Uh, in that sense, I mean, of course, ASEAN also needs to be、um, needs to be、uh, seen as doing something, and 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 also trying to tackle this、uh, with all sincerity and all efforts. I think it's just that、uh, whenever something happens in this day and age, when information is so immediate, you know, in terms of being shared across the world.、Um, Things that、uh, need to be handled with more delicacy sometimes、uh, come under a lot of scrutiny and discussion and dissection, and and that has its pluses and and minuses. Of course, keeping keeping under scrutiny what the junta is doing and and all its egregious actions, of course, that that is important.、Uh, but then when it comes to、um, Uh, the kind of details and 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 the the negotiations that are being done—that's another thing. And I've always maintained that you know when you talk about mediating,、uh, it's the process. It's not about the person; it's about the process, and it's also going to be a very long-term process that need you know、uh, different、um, negotiations or mediations or discussions for different aspects of the kind of、uh, inclusive political changes that Myanmar needs to go through. Right? I mean,、uh, discussing with the ethnic armed groups requires a different kind of expertise. Discussing on what the、uh, the legal framework and basis of Myanmar going forward to its new political future、uh, on a more federal、uh, basis requires a different kind of、uh, di- discussion and negotiation expertise. And let's not forget, in all of this, all the all the all the all the developments that have happened since February the first has really set the country back、um, economically. And and the social crisis that the country is plunged in now, so all the rebuilding and the recovery work and and all of that that needs to be done, you know, the humanitarian assistance and、uh, interventions also require a different kind of coordinating expertise, and and that's why I I I was emphasizing this this、uh, international communities, the whole of community coordinated approach because、uh, ASEAN has its own strengths, it has its central convening power,、um, it is it it has a significant Dialogue relations with the United States and with China, and and with other key uh, trading uh, and and political partners, you know,、uh, across the region,、uh, across the world. Of course, in this region,、uh, Japan is also a very significant dialogue partner of ASEAN, and 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 ASEAN's strength in Myanmar has been in in the in the coordination and facilitation of humanitarian assistance and access. I mean, there is there is this initiative going on, interrupted by COVID. Uh, to try and、um, facilitate and also、uh, manage this、uh, this very、uh, fraught process of、uh, negotiating Rohingya repatriation. So, so, so I think all of these, you know, the thing about Myanmar is is we we can't just view it in 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 one kind of lens. It's it's really that kind of、um, uh, practically almost a conflict resolution lens, if you will, and and you need you need even more creativity for that. I think. 
Right. There's so many moving parts and indeed let's hope this can be a, a turning point maybe for ASEAN uh, centrality, uh, as they say in, in this in this conflict. So, um, but again, thank you very much, Mo and Fanny. Uh, we realise it's a very busy time and a very fraught time for everyone in, involved in Myanmar. So, so thank you both again for making the time. Well, thank you again. And uh, I, I think uh, both Fanny and I, if I may, Fanny, uh, with your permission, uh, we'd just like to express our sentiments and thoughts for the brave and courageous people of Myanmar who are living through this and, and going out to protest day and night uh, to express uh, the desire and aspirations that are being heard across the world. My thoughts and prayers are with uh, all, the, all the people uh, voicing out their desire for change in Myanmar. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the just it's I end every call, every message basically in Myanmar, you know, to anyone, even people who are not protesting. It's, you know, please stay safe. I was uh, talking to someone just this morning who ended up going in hiding, not because that person is a political person, but because his apartment ended up was near hospital and security forces have just just started shooting at the apartment randomly uh, for the last few nights and that is the situation in Myanmar. Um, if we have a minute, I definitely and I, I hope you know very sincerely that the violence will stop. If we have a minute, I wanted to basically read something very briefly that one of my colleagues uh, whose name is Shu Neng, who is basically um, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winner for uh, the uh, the teams uh, the Reuters teams investigation on the Rohingya, Absolutely. and she wrote basically um, something yesterday um, yeah, you, you, that I thought was very strong. And she, um, all the reporters in Myanmar, are basically do incredible work at very very high safety risk. But she wrote this on Facebook and then reposted it, and it goes, you know, if you haven't experienced a coup by your country's military. You won't understand how we feel, even if we try. Um, everything I look at doesn't have a future. Everyone I look at, including kids, don't have a future. Everywhere I look at is dark and closed. Anything and everything is possible under a coup. People live under fear. People live under uncertainty. Every day we hear casualties. Every night we fear more arrest. Every morning we worry whether our loved ones will come back home or not. We skip our heartbeats whenever we hear knocks at our door. And then there's this thing called survivor's, survivor's guilt, which cannot be described with words. People are not living. People are just existing until they're killed. And I thought those were very strong words about how many, many in Myanmar are, are feeling today. Yes, I, I follow Shunline's, uh, Shunline's post. She, she really has a powerful voice. And, you know, practically all the journalists in Myanmar are in hiding now. I mean, they're all on the wanted list. Everyone is in hiding. Yeah, that's yes. that's definitely everyone. If you're an activist, if you're a journalist, pretty much like it's, I think, unless you work for military media or state media, and again, many in state media uh, quit or haven't had a choice, um, pretty much otherwise you're in hiding. And many of them are still coming out and doing the job at really, really great peril. There was a, a case of a journalist who, he got arrested, he got beaten really bloody by the police, 
um, and he um, they made him sign a paper saying that he won't report anymore, um, and he went right back in the streets and reported um, yeah. reported soon enough. Um, yes. So everyone, please stay safe, stay strong. I think we will see. We will see better days.